Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Beautiful day. Leave your finger there in Matthew chapter 25. We'll be getting back to that passage in just a moment. I want to welcome everybody, especially visitors, and ask you if you have a minute to stay, and uh, we'd like to meet with you and talk with you afterwards. Uh, and if you have any questions, if there's anything that you hear or see done that you have questions about, please uh, let us know. We'd be happy to, to talk with you and give you a reason for what we do. I'm not going to be completely honest with you this morning. I'm going to leave out some important details of what I have to say. But safe to say, a few years ago, I put on a Boy Scout uniform. I won't tell you how many. I'll leave that to your vivid imagination. And yet, in the Boy Scout uniform, the Boy Scouts had three very important um, things, lessons, uh, that we as Boy Scouts were called to learn. They were the Boy Scout Law, the Boy Scout Oath, and the Boy Scout Motto. And each one of these, in varying degrees, uh, were meant to train boys in how they should behave, how they should think, how they should act. And in all of these, they are in varying degrees, uh, were ways that I was able to, uh, to learn and to take on the, the Boy Scouts, enjoyed my time uh, with others who had similar thoughts and similar uh, attitudes. But of those three, I think the, the shortest and the, uh, the most substantial is the Boy Scout motto. The Boy Scout motto is a simple two-word phrase that has a lot of punch behind it, and a lot of times goes unrecognized. The Boy Scout motto is simply, be prepared. And yet in those two words, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of, uh, of thought, of preparation that goes into that. As Boy Scouts, we're taught to be prepared for camping trips. We're taught to be prepared in any situation, whatever was called. We wouldn't go to a campsite with an empty backpack, uh, looking at others for, where's our food? Where's our clothes? Where's our sleeping bag? Uh, we would take that opportunity and responsibility on ourselves to make sure that we were, as individuals, prepared. And it's the exact same thing that we have in the church today. We are called to be prepared, and we're given everything we need for that preparation. And we're going to look and see how we're taught to be prepared. If you had walked out this morning not having gone outside for a, a couple of days, you may think, oh, it's going to be in the 70s. It'll be nice. It might be a little in the 90s by the afternoon, a little toasty. You might come out in a short sleeve shirt. But I dare say if you did that, you'd pretty quickly turn around and go back inside and put on something a little bit warmer. If you're not understanding where you're going, if you don't understand the forecast for what today is, uh, you wouldn't carry an umbrella around with you when it's sunny. Um, some of you know that I went to the Middle East about a year ago, um, and I was interested in what their uh, temperatures were going to be. And needless to say, they were very hot. So I didn't take a lot of warm clothes with me. It just wasn't necessary. And so it would be ridiculous, it would be senseless to take a heavy down jacket uh, or a, a very heavy-duty umbrella to a place where it doesn't rain and where it's constantly in the 80s, 90s, and 100s. And it's we're that way today. We're called to be prepared as Christians uh, for what we look forward to, for the promises that we're given. Let's turn over a chapter from Matthew 24. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we'll look at the first 13 verses. It's a very well-known parable, a very well-known story. 
But I think a lot of times the, the familiarity causes us to really glance over it too quickly and not to take its lessons to heart. Matthew chapter 25 and the first 13 verses. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps, they were prepared. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have burned out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you also. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. The simple difference between the five foolish and the five wise virgins was that the wise ones were prepared. They understood what was possible, and they were ready in case there was a delay, and they would be on the alert. It's the same way that it's called for us. In the same way that the bridegroom here didn't uh, announce a time when they would show up. And if they did announce a time, they were simply late. Let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, let's look at the first 13 verses. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is his promise, this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Through, the, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But, the word, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, brother, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, which we are looking, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we're told here that we are called to be prepared day in and day out because no one knows when Christ will return. And we are to live each day as if it might be our last, whether he returns or it's our last day on earth. One day that will be true for all of us, and we will all be called to bow before him, to kneel and recognize who he is. But what happens if you're not prepared? What happens? We see that the the earth will be burned up, but what happens in that case? There's a book in the New Testament that many of us have, have heard of but have not studied much, and I dare to say that's a shame for us that we haven't done a great job of teaching the book of Revelation. I think a lot of us think of the book of Revelation as this mysterious book that is too difficult for us to understand, and so we just pass it over. It's too many symbols. It's too confusing. It's, it's not applicable to me. It's, it's all for somebody else to study and to take advantage of, to learn from. And yet I, I contend that we are called to understand what the message is to us. If you'll turn to the first chapter of Revelation. If we read verse 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation in any other book, I dare say we would be much more eager to dive into the book. The blessing is simple. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We are called blessed if we heed the words that are in this book. And it's not simply scripture in general, which it is, but it's also the book of Revelation. And so if we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to look at a few letters that were written to the churches today. And we're going to look at the message that was given to those churches on how they should be prepared. And in fact, warnings that Christ has given to them in the ways that they were not prepared and how they needed to turn their direction. So let's stay in chapter 2 of of Revelation and look and see what it says to the seven churches. And I would encourage you to take uh, an opportunity this week to look at the, the book of Revelation, to open it, to read it, and to be edified for it. The message is a beautiful and wonderful one. There are seven churches that were uh, written to in the letters in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And each of the churches had different strengths and different weaknesses. And in each letter, there was an opportunity that was, that was given to the church to be better prepared. It was simply a way for showing the church how they were falling short, how they needed to change their approach and their way, their attitudes or their actions, so that they would be ready when Christ would return. Let's look at the, in brief at the seven letters to the churches. Starting in the beginning of chapter 2, the letter is to Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus. And what is the message to the church at Ephesus? That they have abandoned their first love. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What would we do if we heard a letter like that written to us? What would our reaction be? What would our response be? I dare say we would be mistaken to not change what we're doing. 
but to turn from what we were doing. And at the end of the letter to the uh, Ephesians in verse 7 of chapter 2, we see a, a, a stress, a, an emphasis not on each and every letter that's given that we are to pay attention. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And if you have an opportunity in the coming weeks, I encourage you to come and, and participate in the Bible study that happens uh, in the hour before uh, services. It is an opportunity to look at the book of Genesis and to read how the tree of life was given to man. And the intent was that the tree of life would be available to man. And yet when we fell, when sin entered, uh, we were forbidden from partaking of the tree of life. And yet here at the letter to the Ephesians, in fact, we're promised again that tree of life if we remain faithful. And so as the parentheses comes to a close, as we look forward to the promise of the end times, we realize that we again will have an opportunity to partake of the tree of life. The letter to the Smyrnans, or verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2 in Revelation, is an encouragement to the church that there will be prosecutions, persecutions that come along that will challenge will break down the individuals and the congregation as a whole. There will be trials and temptations that the church will have to undergo, and yet they are encouraged to remain faithful. In verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, and so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. An encouraging word to the letter of the church at Smyrna, to remain faithful, to stay steadfast, to remain doing what you're doing until the day of the Lord comes. And yet the church at Pergamum was not like the Smyrnans. They were not following the right path. The next letter to the church at Pergamum, starting in verse 12, warns the church that they've started to follow in the wrong paths, that they've started to follow Balaam. In verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have te- there have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And so you, have some, you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again in verse 17, the common charge He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so who are we following after? Are we following after somebody who gives a message that's not consistent with what the Word of God tells us? Are we feeding our itching ears with a message that is more pleasing to us, easier to follow, less against what we really want to do as individuals? Or are we really doing what the will of God would have us to do? That's the church at Pergamon had fallen away and were following uh, leaders that were not doing what God would have them. And in fact, we see that same warning is given to the church at Thyatira. And Jezebel was leading away Christians from that church. Let's look at chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 26. The promise that's given of those who will return, who will turn away from Jezebel, is he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, To him will I give authority over the nations, 
and he shall rule them with an iron rod as the vessels of the potter are broken pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And finally, concluding with the challenge to the church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we see that Pergamum and Thyatira had both fallen away. And yet, Sardis, in the chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, had reputation that they weren't living up to. What was the letter to the, the church at Sardis saying? Verse 2, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. They were coming up short. They were following, uh, not concluding the works that they had started, that they had a reputation for being alive, but in fact were dead. What a sad letter to be read to the church. How disappointing that would be. And yet, once again, this is a call and opportunity for the church to turn and to change and to be prepared when the Lord would return. In verse 10 of the same chapter, the letter to Philadelphia encourages the church and to remain faithful. In verse 10 of chapter 3, Because you have kept my word, the letter to the Philadelphians said, kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. In verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so far we've seen the challenges to six churches that have gone. Uh, some have fallen away, some have remained faithful. And the encouragement given to the churches is the opportunity to change is still here. The opportunity to realize how you're coming up short, what directions you need to change, you can still make those adjustments, and you can still be ready for when he returns. And yet the seventh letter that was written to the Laodiceans was, in fact, a letter that was saying, you're not doing much of anything, that you're coming up short because you've played it safe, because you've decided not to make a decision because you've decided not to do what he wants you to do. Verses 19 and 20, terrible words to be read. Those whom I love I will reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with me, and he, I will dine with him and he will with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down and with me on my throne, as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the churches, what the Spirit says to the churches. The Laodiceans were coming up short. They were lukewarm, and God had strong rebuke for them. And yet they had the opportunity, because of this letter, to receive it and to change their ways. They were called to be ready. They were called to be hot and to be on fire for God, doing what he would have them to do, not sitting back and neither hot nor cold. And in each and every opportunity, in each and every letter, God takes the opportunity to encourage us to listen to the words that are being spoken to the churches. The encouragement, the chastisement, the discipline, and yet the, the 
promise that if you remain faithful, you will be given the crown of life. And these are the same encouragements and challenges we today face. We have so many things that are calling our attention away from what God would have us to do. How many times would God come to us and would give us an opportunity to repent and to change our ways so that we could be faithful and we could be ready for his return? He is calling us to be ready. But what does that mean to be ready? What does, in fact, being ready entail? Let's turn over to Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will, the pre how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. So we see that the first step is hearing the message that's given. And in fact, you're hearing that today. And the second step is you have to believe. Now what does believe entail? What does it require? Let's turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting in verse 25, verses 25 and 26. This is the time uh, when Jesus was at the house of Martha and Mary, consoling them for the passing of their brother. In fact, let's start back at verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so we're told here the difference between living a physical life and living a spiritual life. And belief in Jesus is a requirement for living the spiritual life. You have to believe that he is and that he came for repenting, for cleaning us of our sins through our repentance. And in fact, that repentance is the message that we've heard so many times to the, the churches in Revelation, to change your direction, to go back to your former love, to go back and do what God would have you to do. You've fallen away, but you still have an opportunity to come back and to make those things right. So after repentance, we have to realize that we are called to confess him. Turn to Romans chapter 10, if you will. Romans chapter 10, 8 through 10. I'm going to make an important distinction here. We're called to make a voluntary confession. And I'll, I'll explain what that distinction is in just a minute. The voluntary confession that we're made is in verses 8 through 10 of Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith which was preaching. 
that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. We're called to make a voluntary confession of who Jesus is, that God raised him from the dead. And yet, what's the difference between a voluntary confession and an involuntary confession? Let's turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And if you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2, this will sound almost identical. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. But why then do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. At the end, whether we choose to make a confession and recognize who Jesus is or not will be immaterial because we will, in the very end, when he returns, be forced to recognize that he is the Son of God. And that's the involuntary confession where everybody will recognize Jesus. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Now that we've heard the word, now that we've believed it, we've turned from our sins, we've confessed that he is the Son of God. Colossians 2, verses 9 through 14. And speaking of Christ, it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. For in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven all of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. To realize that all of our sins are washed away in baptism, the promise that we have because he died on the cross for us, Because of his coming from the dead, we are also promised to come from the dead in newness of life without sin. And yet, is it enough to be baptized once and then to live as we would have? In fact, the letter to the Corinthians says, Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. That is not our attitude. But we are called to live for him. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 14, the passage that we read just a few minutes ago. In fact, encourages us. To live for him. The passage we read was starting in verse uh, 9 and 10, but let's read in verse 7 through 9. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died. And lived again, 
that we might be Lord both of the dead, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. And so because Christ rose again, we can rise again as well. We need to live for him, realizing that he is the resurrection and the life. And yet so often we live as we want to, and we realize that the days are short. We want to carpe diem, seize the day, do what you want, don't let it pass. And yet, let's turn over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. A warning that each one of us needs to hear. Verses 15 through 21 of Luke chapter 12. And then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does this life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own all of what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we see here we're not told not to prepare for our earthly possessions, but not to make our earthly possessions take the place of what preparations we should make for the life in the hereafter when he returns. We're called to be rich toward God, not as earth would call it. So what is the part of the sermon that I always like to say, how does this apply to me? We've seen letters to seven churches in Asia. Those are churches on the other side of the world. That was a long time ago. We see challenges to people who are spending their time uh, doing things that are taking them away from preparing for the life in the hereafter. What can we learn from today? What is the promise and what is the, the end result that we have to look forward to? We've seen already that everyone will have to confess in the end. Whether you choose to confess or not, everyone will have to confess that uh, Jesus is Lord. They won't have a choice when he returns. But at that point, it will be too late. But for those who have chosen to wash their sins away in baptism, who have chosen to turn their lives over to Christ and be rich toward God instead of rich toward themselves, there is an amazing promise that's been given to us. Let's turn to the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 7, and then 12 through 17. Chapter 22 of Revelation, the last chapter of the New Testament. Then he showed me a river, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for a healing for the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
There will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12 through 17. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who practices and loves lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And at the end of days, when he returns, this is the promise that we have if we remain faithful. You've heard the message. You know what must must be done to be saved. We ask that at this opportunity that you not put off being prepared. That if you have come up short, if you've heard that one of the church's messages applies to you, that you need to turn back to your first love. You need to go back to doing what he would have you to do. If you need to be rich toward him rather than rich toward yourselves, make that choice now. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't find yourself unprepared when he comes again. Won't you make your decision now as we stand and we sing?